We continue this morning with the sermon series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. This morning, reading from chapter 13. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the Pew Bibles to Romans chapter 13 for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, the word of truth, and the word of life for us in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who cares for us, that you are a God of order and peace, that it is your will that humanity inhabit the earth in order and in peace. We pray now the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us afresh to illumine our minds and to open our hearts that we might receive your word for what it is, the word of God, that we might submit to it, apply it to our lives, and seek to live according to it for the glory of your name. Through Christ our Savior, in whom alone we trust. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 13, reading verses 1 through 7. Let us hear the word of God. It is written. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. To his name be all praise and glory. Amen. I imagine that you are probably familiar with a phrase that I remember I remember hearing more often, really, during the time when I was growing up. And it is that phrase, the powers that be. You remember that? And that phrase was usually spoken sometimes humorously, sometimes seriously, when someone was in a set of circumstances which he or she could not resolve to satisfaction because he or she was up against more powerful or more influential people or an unyielding organizational hierarchy of some sort. But did you know that that phrase, the powers that be, actually comes from the King James Version 
of Romans 13, 1, which reads, The powers that be are ordained of God. And this passage this morning addresses the relationship of Christians to the civil government, the powers that be. True Christians are people who have pledged their highest allegiance to King Jesus and whose citizenship is in heaven. So then, how are Christians to live in relation to the governing authorities of the political state which may or may not be favorably disposed to the Christian faith? That's a question with which Christians have had to wrestle to varying degrees throughout the world since the first century. But before we dig in, let's see how this passage fits in to the overall larger context of Romans. Context, 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 right? Over the past six weeks, we looked at Romans chapter 12 through the big picture lens of learning to live as Christians. The first thing we learned from Romans 12 verse 1 is that the Christian life is lived in response to the mercies of God, the mercies of God freely offered to helpless, hopeless sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ, who was the wrath-appeasing, justice-satisfying, sin-atoning, substitutionary sacrifice for all who receive Him in faith. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God, freely offered to all who will receive Him. This is the foundation, the only true foundation of true Christian faith. This is where true Christian faith and discipleship begin with the mercies of God in Christ. Again this morning, you will hear the first vow of church membership. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner In the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, justly deserving His condemnation without hope for your salvation, except in His sovereign mercy. So, at Romans 12... Well, after chapters 3 through 11, in which Paul has been expounding the mercies of God, at chapter 12, he begins to give discipleship instructions and ethical commands for Christian living. First of all, as individual disciples, that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Then as members of the body connected to one another, serving together. Then in personal fellowship, relationships with fellow Christians, and then even in response to adversaries who may persecute us or otherwise do evil to us. That's where we've been for the previous six weeks. Now at chapter 13, Paul continues with discipleship instructions, teaching us how Christians are to live in relationship to the governing authorities. So at this point, the circle gets even wider. 
And remember, this is also a matter of living in response to the mercies of God, the mercies of God through which we have the assurance of eternal life, listen, in the everlasting kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the glory yet to be revealed. So this passage begins with the very clear instruction, let every person, literally every soul, for emphasis, be subject to the governing authorities. This sounds like an absolute command, and it is stated as such in order to lay a very solid foundation for Christian living in relationship to the state. It is simple, clear, and straightforward. Christians are to live according to the laws of the land. Christians are to be subject to, that is, submissive to, obedient to the governing civil authorities. That's the basic premise Christians are therefore not to be political insurrectionists, revolutionaries, brigands, troublemakers. This is a basic and foundational principle, the starting point in the relationship between Christians and the state. Now, you may ask, are there any possible exceptions to this basic premise? Yes, there are possible exceptions, and we'll get to those later. But they are exceptions Exceptions to the rule, exceptions which prove the rule. But at the foundational level, the instruction for Christians to be subject to the governing authorities is based on a deeper theological doctrine stated in the second half of verse 1, continuing into verse 2. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist, the powers that be, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, the major point of this passage is that civil authority, political government, is ordained of God. It is not a human invention. It is not a human idea. It is a divine institution, just as marriage Marriage between one man and one woman is a divine institution for the good of humanity. Human government is part of God's plan for the well-being of humanity from the creation of the world. It's built into the very structure of living in this creation. Now, this does not mean that all governments are good governments. Nor does it mean that all politicians act in ways that are pleasing to God. I probably did not need to tell you that. (laughs) But nevertheless, it is God who has decreed and willed that human society be regulated by human government. Therefore, to honor the authority of human government is to honor the supreme authority of God. Human government has a derived authority derived from the supreme authority of God. Now, why is this the case? Because God, the creator and ruler of heaven and earth, is a God of order, not of chaos. This is a major doctrine of the creation account in Genesis 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. But the creator formed a world of order, beauty, harmony, and peace 
out of that primordial chaos. And so we sing the hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Now, if you think about it, that's a political hymn, a hymn about divine government in the sense that the Creator is the Almighty Ruler, the King of creation. But then, further in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, we read that the Creator, the Almighty King, has entrusted His creation into the dominion the lordship, the rule of his creaturely representatives, his image bearers, humanity. So in that sense, human government derived from divine authority and under divine authority was first established in the Garden of Eden. Even before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion, government over the creation. Adam and Eve ruled in the garden as the prince and princess of the almighty king's creation. Therefore, as R.C. Sproul is remembered as saying, Adam and Eve's sin against God was an act of cosmic treason, insurrection, a revolutionary act attempting to overthrow the supreme authority of the Almighty King. And just as Adam's sin corrupted marriage and work and the harmony of creation, so Adam's insurrection against the supreme king also corrupted the divine institution of human government. You're with me. Are other people with me on that? You've got to see that. Right? Right? Our marriages are corrupted. Our work in this world is corrupted. The world of nature is out of whack. Why? Adam's sin. The same is true of government, a divine institution. Therefore, due to Adam's rebellion against the king of creation, all human governments, though instituted by God, are now corrupted to varying degrees by sin. Nevertheless, in this fallen world, human government, though corrupted by sin, is ordained by God to maintain order in human society. For without it, humanity would be plunged into absolute anarchy, and all-consuming chaos. And therefore, verses 3 through 4 tell us that the governing authorities exist to approve the law-abiding and to punish the lawbreaker. Verse 4 says that the governing authority does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant, the minister of God, in the secular realm, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The secular government, no matter what that authority believes or doesn't believe about God, is nevertheless a servant of God maintaining order in society and maintaining some sense, some level of justice in society. And and this is the reason that vigilante justice, 
taking justice into our own hands personally is itself a sin and a crime because vigilante justice, taking vengeance into our own hands, usurps the authority of the state, which is a usurpation of the authority of God. So God has established this mediatorial means, human government, to maintain law and order in society, which means that in certain cases, well, what it means is that there's nothing unchristian about a Christian appealing to the civil government in the case of criminal behavior. There's nothing unchristian. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing unethical for a Christian to appeal to the civil government in cases of criminal behavior. And that it goes back to chapter 12 in which it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. One of the ways that God exercises his vengeance, his wrath, is through the mediatorial service of the civil government. Well, God has ordained then that the governing authorities punish the wrongdoer, and the reference to the sword is the reference to the sword, which means going to the ultimate punishment. The government has the right to apply its punishments all the way to the point of capital punishment. Now, whatever debates there might be about the circumstances under which capital punishment ought or ought not to be applied, not going there today, but it's simply to state that the principle remains that the state has the God-given authority in principle, in principle, even to administer capital punishment. So, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It is rooted in a principle that is established at creation by the creator himself and which continues in effect even in this fallen world. And Christians are to understand that they therefore honor God's supreme authority by honoring the derived authority of human government. Could there ever be exceptions to this general principle? Yes, there are exceptions. Exceptions which prove the rule, but we'll get to those in a little bit longer. But right now, here's a practical point of application, particularly for parents of children. If, since human government is derived from divine government, then where and how do children learn, Romans 13, 1, to be subject to the governing authorities? The answer, of course, is the home. It is no accident that the children's catechism teaches us and our children that the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, means to love and obey my parents and all others that God appoints over me. There it is. It begins in our homes with our children with the fifth commandment. Where do children learn to respect authority? Children learn to respect and obey babysitters, grandparents, teachers, coaches, police officers, by learning, first of all, to respect and to obey their parents. 
and therefore parents have the responsibility of exercising judgment and appropriate loving punishment when the child does wrong. How else will the child ever learn? What it means is that children ultimately learn to honor and obey God by learning to honor and obey their parents. So there's a direct educational discipleship connection between the fifth commandment and this instruction to be subject to the governing authorities. And when children do not learn to obey the fifth commandment, you can be very sure that they will not be subject to the governing authorities as they get older. Right? And that unleashes more chaos into society. It's also important for adults to remember that when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, they did not have a Christian president. They had a diabolical, maniacal, ungodly emperor, Nero, who in just a few years thereafter would behead the apostle who wrote this letter. It is important to note that when this letter was written, and when the letters of Peter were written, Nero had not yet at that point unleashed the fiery hell of persecution against Christians So we we must not think that the apostles were advocating absolute submission to Caesar and unqualified respect for Caesar. No, no, not at all. But the general principle of these verses is that our subjection to the governing authorities in general does not depend upon the piety, integrity, or wisdom of the governing authorities. Yeah, this this doesn't mean that God is pleased with all governing authorities. Of course, he's not. If we surveyed world history, there would probably be very, very, very few throughout world history who met with God's approval. Nevertheless, Christians are commanded to respect the institution of governmental authority and the offices of governmental authority and accept, in particular cases, those who occupy those offices. This is the reason that Americans are expected to stand when the President of the United States is introduced and to address him or any other government office holder with respect, whether they agree with his policies or not. The Scripture says, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We don't like the way all our tax money is spent, right? So, does God give us the liberty just to withhold what we don't Want to submit? No, he doesn't. We render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And we, honor, and we offer respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Not because of who they are as private individuals, but who they are as holders of public office instituted by God. This, by the way, is also the first reason. It is the foundational reason. It is the fundamental Reason that Christian American citizens, and all American citizens for that matter, ought to stand with respect when the flag is presented and the national anthem is sung. Not because we worship America, which is idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. And not 
because we agree with everything our government does. Certainly, I hope that we do not. But fundamentally, because God has established the government which is represented by the flag and the anthem. So by respecting the authority of the Constitution represented by the flag and the anthem and those office holders, Christians in America are respecting the supreme authority of God, even though Christians ought to have grave concerns about and serious objections to those ungodly actions, policies, and legislation of our federal government which violate God's law. There is legislation on our books which is an absolute abomination to the almighty king of creation. Nevertheless, we are to respect our imperfect government because there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, what about those exceptions? For the first time in American history, Christians in America, due to their religious convictions of conscience, are beginning to experience hostility from the powers that be. This is new territory for us. Let us be constant in prayer that the Supreme Court in upcoming cases will uphold the First Amendment right of the free exercise of religion and protect those who seek to live peaceably according to their religious convictions of conscience. The basic rule is this. When the governing authorities command us to do something that directly violates the revealed will of God, we must disobey the state and obey God. When the governing authorities command us not to do something that is clearly commanded positively by God in his word, we must disobey the state and obey God. We may suffer the consequences in this world, but when the issue is clear, a clear violation of God's clearly revealed will in his word, we must obey God rather than men. Think, for example, of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt who were commanded by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew male infants upon delivery. They disobeyed Pharaoh and obeyed God. An ancient story? Right now, in America, legislation is needed. Legislation is needed to protect medical students from being forced, forced against their conscience to perform abortions as a requirement for their education. and to protect medical professionals from discrimination, government discrimination, financial discrimination, etc., if they refuse to perform or participate in abortions. 
I have ministerial colleague friends in Canada who could be any Sunday arrested for hate speech for reading certain passages of the Bible, Romans being one, and other books of the Bible in preaching the truth of God's word about sexual immorality. There are probably some people in America today who would like to see the same kind of laws apply to the church in America. If that ever came to pass, let us pray that it won't, then our answer would have to be the same as the Apostle Peter's was when the Jewish governing authorities in Jerusalem forbid him from preaching the gospel. Peter said, well, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. That's the only principle of civil disobedience for Christians, and it cannot be thrown about willy-nilly. The New Testament is clear that peaceable and obedient citizenship is a hallmark of Christian discipleship as long as we are not required by the state to violate the clearly revealed will of God. It is our Christian duty as peaceable citizens to hold our government accountable to the Constitution of the United States and to work and to vote peaceably and lawfully for legislation that best accords as nearly as possible in this fallen world to the clear principles of God's revealed word. Now, let's close by remembering the mercies of God. Jesus Christ crucified and risen. In response to an entrapment question, gotcha question, Jesus replied to the Pharisees, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' point was that paying taxes to Caesar was really an insignificant thing, not really worth worrying about compared to offering the entirety of one's life to God. What matters most is where your highest allegiance lies. And Jesus proved that. He absolutely proved where his highest allegiance lay. In his trial before Pilate, Jesus stood with courage, with dignity, with humility, with impeccable integrity, and with absolute fidelity to his Father and with uncompromising commitment to his calling. Jesus knew all about authority, the authority of human rulers and the authority of the Almighty Father. When Pontius Pilate asked him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority at all over me had it not been given you from above. So there it is. Jesus, for the sake of our salvation, acknowledged that Pontius Pilate had been given authority from above. And so Jesus subjected himself to the authority of Pontius Pilate because he had subjected himself to the authority of his father in heaven.
It was all part of the divine plan for our salvation. See how it works. The ungodly, sinful, unjust judgment of Pontius Pilate was the means by which God in Christ accomplished salvation by grace for all who believe in him. Jesus subjected himself to the condemning judgment of Pontius Pilate so that all who trust in him might not be subjected to the condemning judgment of the almighty king. The Lord rules over all. And now he is risen from the dead and has been granted all authority in heaven and on earth, King of kings, Lord of lords. Therefore, let us all pledge our allegiance to him above all and live as citizens of this nation who are first of all citizens of heaven. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty Father, the Almighty King of creation, we give you thanks for your word of truth, your word of life to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, your word will not go forth in vain, but will accomplish that for which you purpose it and bring forth life and faith to your glory in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout